Welcome to the Seattle Public Library's podcasts of author readings and library events, a series of readings, performances, lectures, and discussions. Library podcasts are brought to you by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation. To learn more about our programs and podcasts, visit our website at www.spl.org. To learn how you can help the Library Foundation support the Seattle Public Library, go to foundation.spl.org. Welcome to the library. My name is Paige, and I'm really glad to see so many people here interested in storytelling. Um, So we're really excited to host this program of storytelling for adults. It's the first time we're doing this program at the library. We hope to do more in the next next year or two. Um, This program is funded by the Library Foundation, and that's who we're hoping will fund it for next year, so we're grateful to them. We're really fortunate to have Paul Currington with us today. Um, He lives in Olympia, so we're grateful that he was willing to make the trek up here to help us out. So, as some of you already know, Paul is one of the organizers of Fresh Grounds, Fresh Ground Stories, and that's modeled on the Moth Radio Hour on public radio. And as you probably know, it's basically true stories, you know, told in the first person, um, told by adults. And we're at the library. We're really used to story time for kids. So this is this is a new venture. Um, Fresh Ground Stories is a meetup group, and it usually meets, as far as I can tell, the fourth Thursday evening of the month um, at Roy Street Coffee, uh, Coffee and Tea in Capitol Hill. Storytelling, of course, is an ancient, ancient art, probably about as old as as humanity. Um, and it, you know, telling true stories about our own experiences, I think, fills a really primal need for people. It's important as a form of social currency connecting with other people, but it's also an important way that we make sense out of our own life and experiences, and sometimes find humor in it, sometimes find lessons. Um, I want to thank Kristen Edstrom, who's not here. I, I think she might be stopping in. She's our children's librarian here at this branch, and this program uh, was really her idea. She went, a friend took her to Fresh Ground Stories one night, um, at Capitol Hill, and she had this realization as a children's librarian that we do all these story time activities for kids at the library, but why are we leaving out adults? So she had this idea, and it's turned into this whole series now called Sharing Our Stories. And as I said, we hope to continue that. I think that's everything. Welcome to the library. I'm going to turn this over to Paul now. Yeah, but thank you everyone for coming. All right, so there, uh, there's a lot of people here who have never been to one of our shows, so I want to explain to you how it works, tell you the rules, the simple rules. We don't have a lot of rules, but I've already been asked if someone can break one. That's right. I said no. I, I stayed strong. Um, so anyway, I know. Okay, that would be the woman right there. <laughs> so here's how it goes. This is personal storytelling, true stories. Stories have to be true, and they have to have happened to you personally. Now, I know all of us have friends and relatives that crazy stuff has happened to, and those are great stories. I I would ask you to have them come and tell the story because um, when you tell a story about yourself, it just lets us know something about you, and it kind of makes it – it's different when you tell a personal story 
than when you tell a story about someone else. I don't really know what the difference is, but it's, it's just really powerful when it's about you. So it's got to be true. It has to have happened to you. Keep it to five to eight minutes because um, I hate bumping people. I hate running out of time and people have practiced their story and then I got to go, eh, I'm sorry. So at five minutes, I blow this very nice whistle. I stole it from my son. Uh, it's nice. It's not going to, it's. Huh? Nice. It's very, I think that's just a little nudge like, okay, five minutes. You now have three minutes to wrap up your entire life. Let's get. And at seven minutes, I'll blow it again. I'll please, please, please. Um, you know how to wrap stuff up. This is the library, so try to keep it clean. I know this is this is the loudest I've ever been at the library. So it's they're not going to shush you, but I'm you're going to see me go. Oh my God! If you you know drop an f bomb or something, um, that's just that's me. That's my own stuff. That's maybe that'll come up in a story. Um, now this is storytelling. Hopefully your thing has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Sometimes we get comedians and want to kind of shoehorn their their act in so no comedy or singing you can briefly sing a tv theme song occasionally that's important i don't know why um and it has to be about uh the theme and i tried to make uh, today's theme as as broad as possible uh so the theme is lessons learned lessons learned which is pretty much any story right <laughs> any story worth telling you've learned something so um, if I have any advice, any quick advice, it's uh, one, know your last line first. That's the kind of thing that, that ties it up for us. It lets us know why the story is important to you or, or what you've learned. Uh, and also, I learned this from this other line from a, a, some sort of street preacher, some sort of preacher with lots of tattoos and piercings. Uh, and she said, preach from your scars, not your wounds. So sometimes the story has to like sit with you for a while. Um, so make sure you're okay. <laughs> That's all. Sometimes I have told stories from wounds, and I, uh, you know, I'm not afraid of crying, but it's weird to do it in public. So um, that is it. Uh, there is the tin back there. I have names right here. Um, I'm going to alternate between people I've asked to tell stories and um, people who are threw their name in there, and so at some point during the show, I'll go collect uh, some more names from the, the lovely smelling cinnamon orange, one of my favorite storytellers. I met him at this show. I've met some amazing people. That's the thing with, like, this show, man. You just start meeting people, and it's, uh, yeah, it's really cool. I, this is the way I've met people in Seattle, because I don't live here, and uh, so I meet them this way, and uh, he is going to get the muffin of gratitude, the coconut cranberry vegan muffin of gratitude and oddly enough he is a vegetarian we've learned this over his stories he doesn't eat anything with eyes ladies and gentlemen jake and there I am. Uh, i ate potatoes <laughs> <laughs> thanks uh so for the past five years, I've been teaching at Washington State Reformatory, which is a reformatory in Washington. It's our main one. It's a medium and maximum security prison. And now I guess I know a lot about it and the prison system in general, but when I started, I, I certainly didn't. Uh, I knew nothing about prisons at all. The only time, well, I'd been, I'd been called for jury duty once in Chicago, and the letter asked to bring a book, and I was legitimately reading Mein Kampf at the time. And so they didn't let me anywhere near the place. Uh, I was not selected. 
And so I, I signed up because I was all excited to do this, to, to teach astronomy. And my first time in the prison was actually my first day of class, which was a little uh, nerve-wracking. I didn't know what to expect. Um, I guess I was like a casual fan of the Shawshank Redemption. And, uh, and you show up, and they have all these rules, which make a lot of sense. You can't wear one of the, one of the lines is jewelry that looks like keys. <laughs> so... I show up, and you go through metal detectors, and you have to take off your shoes, and they look through your materials, and and, uh, and then you go through this. It's, it's a whole process to get into a medium maximum security prison, no surprise. And I go in, and I go to my classroom, and I'm just kind of ready to start. I don't know what to do, so I'm going to take charge and go. And I walk in, and the classroom is 17 students, and they are big people, uh, very large students. And uh, the first thing I go over is the difference between astronomy and astrology because some people <laughs> signed up for the wrong class. <laughs> and uh, I just started with, do, you know, does anyone here know their zodiac signs? Because we're going to go through the 10 minutes of astrology and move on to astronomy. And one guy in the front, a uh, big, bald prison dude, uh, he goes, yeah, I, I got no idea. And on his neck, Aries is written in <laughs> big block letters. And, uh, and I just kind of, okay, and we move on. And we go into it, and it turns out everybody was there for astronomy. People are hungry to learn, and, and it's not just about learning. Um, some students I asked why they were there, and they said because Spanish was canceled, which <laughs> needed further explanation. And just the sense of being in an educational room, a sense of progress. We are actually trying to get them credit. This was a four-credit class to get their AAs. So the class is going great. Uh, students are doing really well. And uh, I, I really love it, but I kind of forgot that it was a prison. I mean, y you do notice that the students don't quite look like UW students. Um, <laughs> And you notice that you don't have a PowerPoint, you don't have clicker questions, it's just you and a whiteboard because uh, you can't bring anything into the prison. So they provide you with markers. And the students are really doing fantastically and I've never felt so appreciated in the classroom. When we left, I started to erase the board and they said, oh no, 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 Jake, you don't have to do that, we'll do it for you. Um, and, and a bunch of people just wanted to come up and shake my hand and say they're so appreciative that I've been out there, which is not usually what you get as a teacher and I'm, I'm driving home and it's a pretty long drive and just thinking how really wonderful these students were, how, how surprised I was and, and I thought, how, how are these people in here? I, I don't know anything about how you get into a medium or maximum security prison and these were just such gracious, wonderful people and so I, I get home and I realize it doesn't really have to be a mystery because I have my class list and I have Google. <laughs> and the first guy I look up is, is one of these star students. He was just so nice and articulate and, and um, it shows up right away that he, he murdered two people with a knife. Uh, it was, yeah, just a horrible story to read and, and your jaw's just on the floor and he um, stabbed the guy like 187 times. And uh, I go through my students, and, and they're pretty much all in there for murder. And, and I didn't really know what to do with it. I asked somebody else who's a lawyer, how does this prison system work? And she said, well, 
these folks that you're teaching are mostly in medium, which means they were violent criminals a long time ago and have been promoted on good behavior. And I realized when I'm looking up the dates of these that uh, some of them are 1982, 1978. Uh, one of the students was tried on three strikes at age 17 and is now in his 50s. And after five years now, we've gotten about two to three dozen students who have earned AAs in, in prison. And uh, it's been long enough that I've actually met three of the students who have been released. And I guess there are people, like my, my parents in particular, who um, during that first class, there was, there was a murder in the prison. Uh, one of the guards was killed by one of the students. And the whole thing was on lockdown for four months. Prison education programs were canceled. And everybody was on lockdown, and people were put in the hole. And a lot of folks, I think myself maybe before, thought that murder should be in solitary all the time, forever. And, uh, and being in there has really taught that these are some of the best students you could have. Certainly muffin worthy, my friend. That was that was the first story Jake ever told at our show, and it just made me want to be his friend. Especially if I ever broke the law and ended up in prison. It's like I uh, I had to go to prison once for for work, and before I went, they made me take a class on how not to get tricked into being their friend. That's they're tricky. I'm not I'm not saying they're not wonderful people, you know. Within, but I'm just saying like they got. 24-7 to learn how to be your friend like you cannot accept a muffin from a prisoner. That is a rule. Yes, because then at some point they're like, oh, I gave you the muffin. Can't you give me the thing with the, you know, with the, give me the package. Or the, yeah, so don't go to prison with muffins. That's <laughs> what I, the Department of Commerce has taught me <laughs> if anyone's trying to sneak anything in. Our next performer coming to stage is someone who was never told here before, but I think she might have, might have told before, Anne. Anne? Oh, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Anne, a first-timer. I, uh, I just got off the phone before I came here with my oldest friend in the world, Paula. Uh, she <laughs> Sometimes she says, I wish you could figure out a different way to describe me than your oldest friend in the world, but that's what she is. We were best friends growing up. She lived across the street from my grandmother. Uh, we grew up in a little tiny town in Pennsylvania along a big river called the Susquehanna. And the reason I was on the phone with Paula is she's been helping my aunt move out of the house that my aunt has lived in for 77 years. And it's the house that my dad also was born in. And, and it's just huge. My, my aunt is the, my last relative on my dad's side of the family. And we've al always had a really fraught relationship because we didn't, and you don't choose your family, right? But, but we never would have chosen each other. <laughs> I mean, never. And, and we're, we're, we're in each other's lives because we're pretty much the last ones left standing. My, my uh, Nomi had a twin brother, Eddie, and my dad was her older brother. And within five years before I was 10, uh, her, my grandfather, her dad, her twin brother, Eddie, and my dad all died of the same kind of um, hereditary aneurysm. 
So just boom, boom, boom. And so it was me, my mom, and my grandmother left, and it, it, and it was right around the time of Kennedy. It sort of felt like you were in the country after that, like Camelot was over, you know, and we were, we were left. We weren't necessarily the ones that should have been left, you know what I mean? They kind of took the best. So Nomi stayed in the house, which is a huge, beautiful house, and it's slowly fallen down around her ears because she doesn't have the money to keep it up. She cleans houses still at 77. She has a little tiny social security, but not much. And she worries and worries and worries, as she should, about the house and the yard. It's a huge yard. It's a double lot. She still mows the grass herself with a, with a, with a it's not a push mower, thank God, but it's, it's not a riding mower. She's out there mowing the grass. And for years, we've all been trying to get her, when my mom was still alive, trying to get her to move out of that house, sell the house and move out. But it's like her identity, you know, like that house has been in the family. They don't want to let anything go in terms of the antiques. And... And finally, a couple of years ago, she started talking about, you know, my money's going to run out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to move and worried and worried and worried. So I go back about once a year to visit her. I sleep on, she she's has started to sell off furniture, so she's quickly sold all the beds but her own. So, <laughs> so I slept, for a long time, I slept on one of those, like, the first 1.0 air mattress, you know, that's just like the flat beach ball, basically, you know, <laughs> oh my God. And I learned to only go visit in the summer because it's an oil-heated house, and since she has so little money, she doesn't want to turn the heat on, so she keeps it at a, a solid 46 degrees. <laughs> So I go back in the summer. Now, the issue with going back in the summer is it is Pennsylvania. It's hot and humid, 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 and there are lots of crickets and a train that goes right by outside her house, and it would be like Paul's whistle writ large, you know. Woo! And there's also a, a, a grandfather's clock downstairs that chimes every quarter hour, and it's not set to the right time, so, you know, you never really know what time is bonging. And there's the town clock that also chime so good luck trying to pretend you're not getting to sleep so I only go back in the summer and I've been going back uh you know every summer with her and I went back this September we saw a realtor we um we went to a found a great retirement home where she they actually would take her if she could sell the house for enough money and so she put the house on the market if that house were here she could get two million dollars for it I think even with the state it's in which includes the fact that termites have completely eaten through the living room floor and she put her foot through it the day before they were going to have the open house. <laughs> we put a rug over that area. <laughs> but we did reveal it in the inspection. That, she, so the house was, so she, they put the for sale sign out. They, um, it's big news in that little town that Nomi's selling her house. She had an offer, she had two offers within the second day the woman from the laundromat, I kept hearing about the woman from the laundromat, who really loved the house. The woman from the laundromat came in $10,000 lower than her asking price. The realtor called her up and said, I've got somebody else interested. Do you want to sweeten it up? She met Nomi's asking price in cash. We got Nomi into the retirement home. Last week they came, the auctioneer came and took all the furniture except what she's going to take with her. I do, and I was just talking to Paula about the fact, Paula said, the house is still beautiful. You can see the wood. Paula and her husband Jim have been helping Nomi haul out bags and bags of trash, all the things that a family has accumulated in 77 plus years of being in a house. And Nomi is becoming so happy. 
I don't miss it, she told Paula. I, don't, I didn't choose any of this stuff, she's realizing. It, it, it's the worst of inheritance, you know, when you get stuff that you didn't choose, but then somehow you're responsible for it. And I think she is realizing she doesn't have to be responsible for it anymore. And when Paula and Jim went over, they said they, uh, they stepped into the house and it was about 110 degrees <laughs> because Nomi's not going to leave a drop of oil for those new people in the tank. <laughs> and so I am imagining her new place and the last time I, I visited in September I was kind of a wreck because she was really wrought up and that really sends me because it's all my stuff she does all my stuff and it's how I'm going to be in 20 years Norm I'm sorry <laughs> and I took a walk I do a lot of walking and I took a walk down to the river where I was never allowed to go as a kid and I found this place where you can see a vista of the river that I haven't seen before and you can look down the river and I look toward the little town where she's going to be moving and it felt so open and so possible. And she has good enough health that I am hoping that the next 10, 20 years, she is going to be really happy. And so am I. Thank you. Ah, thank you, Ian. Wow. You know, I, when she was talking to Norm, that's her, her sweetheart. And I met Norm like four years ago. Uh, at a storytelling conference, we had to all sleep together in a same tiny, we all were sharing. I was spooning Norm before you were. That's what I'm trying to say. I had a co-worker start coming to uh, our show, and she works with, uh, she works at the Department of Commerce. That we provide money to uh, nonprofits, and and she was so taken by this storytelling experience that um, she said, I got to, we have to start collecting stories from homeless families to help get more money from politicians. So she hired one of our storytellers to go collect stories from homeless people uh, around the county. And, um, and every month she had this meeting in the Gates Foundation about something else. She had a monthly meeting up there, and she would say, we're getting these amazing stories from these people that are dying to tell their story. And it's just so wonderful. I'm so glad I heard about this storytelling thing. And then about four months ago... Um, out of nowhere, uh, we all got invited to the Gates Foundation, who had just hired StoryCorps to go out in the three counties around here and collect stories from homeless people to get money for that. So somehow from here, we get to like the richest dude in the world <laughs> to understand how great storytelling can be uh, to help people get off the streets. So, and that's something. <laughs> Ah, okay, so now uh, I'm going to bring up one of our regulars that I asked to uh, tell a story, and she kept telling me all week, Paul, I don't remember the story. I don't, I don't think I can do it. I don't remember. And I said, you know what? It's open mic. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just do your best. It's going to be great. So be kind and generous to my friend Jill right there coming up. <laughs> So yeah, I don't know about the timing on this story. I'm going to do my best. And also, to censor it a little bit, um, I'm taking out the F-bomb. I'm replacing it with the word fluff or fluffing so that uh, maybe it's just a little bit, a little bit better. Um, so uh, pretty recently, a friend asked me, what comes to mind, Jill, when I say the word caught, like being caught, catching someone? 
and honestly, nothing positive came to mind. There was not a single good thing that came to mind when I thought caught, except maybe um, that poster from grade school, you know, where there's a little boy helping the woman cross the street. It says, I was caught doing something good. But um, I haven't been caught doing something good recently. So um, what did come to mind, though, was that uh, pretty recently I was getting ready to take a shower, and I pulled the curtain back, and I discovered this huge black spider in the bottom of the tub. And um, he's scurrying around trying to get out, but he can only ever make it just a little bit up to the side of the tub before he slides back down. He tries again up the side of the tub, and he slides back. And this keeps happening, and and I'm kind of at a point in my life where I feel like if I... Uh, <laughs> If I kill something that large, it's kind of like murder. It was really big. Um, you know, and he, he doesn't want to be there, and I don't want him to be there. And he's just existing, and I'm existing. So I take this opportunity to walk into my kitchen. I grab a pint glass out of the cupboard and a little piece of paper. Um, and I go back in the bathroom, and as soon as the spider has made his way to the flat part of the tub, I just stick the pint glass over it, slide the paper underneath, and I catch him. And once he realizes he's caught, He's flipping out. This spider is jumping up and down in the cup. It's a big spider. It's a jumping spider. He's jumping everywhere, and he's hitting the edges. And, and I'm just watching him kind of panic for a minute until he just realizes at some point, I'm not going anywhere. That's it. This little glass, this is where I am. And he just accepts his fate and settles down. This would have been the opportune moment to squish him had I not been such a humanitarian. But instead, I walked outside um, over to my neighbor's fence, and I put the cup and the paper over, and I just lifted it up and gently let him go, and he was free. But it was interesting, I thought, because it took him being in a situation that he didn't really want to be in, and it took me catching him in order for him to be freed. So uh, the year I turned 23... I was working at Starbucks, and I was living in the basement apartment of my parents' house. Basically, the American dream. And, um, <laughs> and it, was really, it really wasn't a bad thing, though, because I had moved back there when I was 21. My parents made great roommates. They let me come and go as I pleased. The rent was low. The fridge had food in it all the time. And they really, for the most part, they stayed out of my business because I took care of my business. I was very responsible. I worked 40-plus hours a week at a steady job with full benefits. I paid my bills. I kept myself and my room and living areas clean. And, uh, and they respected that because on the outside of the box, I was really taking care of business. And it was all just keeping up appearances because on the inside of the box, what they didn't know is I spent most of my evenings and days off consuming stupid amounts of whiskey, doing lots and lots of drugs, anything I could find to go up my nose or down my throat or I could smoke. I was just, I was having a great time in my early 20s. Um, and, and so it worked out that they didn't know that. And, and during this whirlwind time that I thought I was having this great time, I met this man named Chris. Now, when Chris and I met, there was this just it's like that magnetic energy when they say you just connect with someone. They have that, that crazy something out of this world. Like we had that just from the first moment I talked to him. So we started talking a lot, and we started hanging out a lot. 
and we started having sex a lot, and it was super fun. And Chris introduced me to something that I had never known before. It's called OxyContin. I don't know if anyone here is familiar with that, but it's basically synthetic morphine. And it was delightful. It was one of the best things I'd ever tried. And we would, and we would drink, and we would sniff this and we'd just have a great time and we'd write poetry and we'd play music and talk about how we're going to travel the world together. It was, oh, it was super fun. Um, so what happens though is uh, the seasons pass. We go through uh, Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's and during this time my parents are like you really like hanging out with this guy uh, but his, his living situation was a little funny so being the loving people they are they said if he needs a place to stay he can stay at our house for a while. As long as you don't sleep in the same bedroom, which made sense. It was great. So he was upstairs. I was downstairs. Time passes, and uh, I kind of realized I haven't been hanging out with my friends. I've been hanging out with him and him and my friends, but I've kind of neglected my personal friends amongst my flighty euphoria Oxycontin trip. And so I said, I just want to hang out with my friends. Are you okay with that? He says, sure, I'm okay with that. But he wasn't okay with that. He wasn't at all. See, what I didn't know about Chris during this time is that he's a bipolar manic depressive, and he stopped taking medication, and he was using these opiates to self-medicate and get himself through things. So he was, he was a little off kilter up here. So the first night I tried to hang out with my friends alone, he obsessively called me, and he wanted to be there with me. And I'm like, this is, this is not okay. You're a little bit too possessive. So the next night I said, how about instead of friends, we just – Sit in our separate spaces. I'll sit in my room. You sit in your room. And that worked out until the next morning when he comes downstairs and he knocks on the door. And he's like, Jill, Jill, open the door. I'm like, Chris, just go away. He's like, Jill, open the door. I'm like, Chris, go Jill, I need you to open the door. I'm like, Chris, go away. And he's like, Jill, I just need my toothbrush, which is in my room for some reason. So I'm like, okay. I grab the toothbrush, go to the door, open it, hand him the toothbrush, and I close the door. And he's kind of trying to force it open. And I'm like, Chris, just go away. And he says, Jill, if you don't open this door right now, I'm going to tell your parents about all the drugs that you're doing and that we're fluffing and that you're fluffing everyone. And he says this loud enough for my parents to hear. Um, and, uh, and the situation escalates a little bit, and my dad kicks him out, and he says, nobody gets to say the things you're saying to my daughter right now. You need to leave. And so over the next week or so, he, he starts following me. He starts showing up at my job. And he keeps calling me, and it got so bad to the point that one morning he wouldn't stop calling me, and, and then he finally, when I picked up the phone, threatened my life and my family's life. And I'm like, this is absurd. So I go upstairs, I give the phone to my dad. Dad, I need you to help me out with this. So my dad says, Chris, Jill doesn't want you to call anymore. And he pauses, and he looks at me, and he says, Chris wants to know if you want your pink notebook back. He's like, no, Dad, I, I don't want my pink notebook back. And at this point, I'm kind of, I'm kind of panicking. You know, I'm at that point where I've, I've been caught, but I'm still trying to make my way out of the situation. And he says, um, Jill, Chris wants to know if you want that perfume he took back. No, Dad, I, I don't want the perfume back. I, 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 just, I just want him to stop calling. And this went on for a few items until my dad stops and he said something that, I, in my worst nightmares, I would never, ever, ever want to hear come out of my dad's mouth. So he says, Jill, Chris wants to know if you want the pictures of you giving him a blowjob back. <laughs> and I just gave up. There was, no, there was no getting out of this situation. I just looked and I said, no, Dad, I don't want anything from Chris. I just want him to leave me alone. No, Chris, she wants you to leave her alone. 
So as it turns out, I had to go to work that afternoon, but the tire on my car was flat, so my dad had to drive me to work. And as we're on the way, I'm, I'm deflated. Uh, deflated. I have nothing to say. I'm, I'm exposed, and I'm ready to just get squished, you know. And my dad said, Jill, do you know why Chris said those things to me on the phone today? I said, because he hates me, and he wants to ruin my life. My dad said, no, it's, it's because he wants me to be angry with you. He wants to tell me something that's going to make me hate you. But what he doesn't know, Jill, is that there is absolutely nothing you could ever do that would make me love you any less than I do. There is nothing that your mom and I could ever find out about you that we didn't know that would change our feelings for you because you're our baby girl, and we love you, and you always have a place in our hearts, and you always have a place in our home, and you need to know that. And he could have. My dad could have just put the hammer down, but instead, he just lifted the cup, and he let me go. Yeah, so so basically, so, so it took me being in a situation I really shouldn't have been in and being caught to really be set free from it. Uh, thank you, Jill. That was perfect. Man, every parent here needs to say that to their kids. I never heard that. I never heard that from my parents, but you know, it's not too late for you guys. Say it to your kids. There's nothing you can do that'll make me stop loving. This podcast was presented by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation and made possible by your contributions to the Seattle Public Library Foundation. Thanks for listening.